pick it up in verse 12 here, where Paul the Apostle says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, this is kind of a weird thing. The Corinthian congregation, they were actually thinking that they could be Christians, that Paul could be an apostle, that this whole church thing can continue on just kind of the way it is, even though they said that we don't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so Paul here, uh, he shares regarding that, this whole chapter, we've talked about how it's probably one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. In the beginning, we went over last week how it shares the gospel. And then the rest of the chapter, it talks primarily about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus died for us on the cross, that was his payment, but the resurrection is the receipt. The resurrection is proof of his power that he gives us. You know, we need help in life, but especially when we die. And so, so important, this truth of of the resurrection. And and I was just thinking about how um, in the world today, there's a lot of people who don't believe in life after death. Now, the majority of Americans still do. The 62% of Americans believe in life after death. 20% say they're not sure, and I think there's somewhere around 17% that say they don't believe in life after death. But... What we're finding is as time progresses, and uh, we see it, uh, unfortunately, in other nations and is starting to creep into the United States of America, is less and less people are believing in life after death. Um, As a matter of fact, recently with the coronavirus, uh, there was an actress, uh, her name is Gal Gadot. And some of you guys might know her. She's the woman who starred, starred in the movie Wonder Woman. And she's, uh, she's an Israeli, she's Jewish. And I was surprised to find out that during the coronavirus, it was early in March, right around that time, March 20th, that she released an Instagram uh, video with a whole bunch of different uh, famous people, I guess. W- that, and they all together sang that song by John Lennon, a song he released in 1971 called Imagine. And uh, the, the song has some weird lyrics to it. Um, imagine, maybe you guys are familiar with it. Let me read it to you. It says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. And I was, I was l- listening to the, the lyrics of that song. And by the way, I, I, you know, good music, you know, the, the melody to it, it's, it's very catchy. Um, but the lyrics to it, um, I was thinking, wow, 
That's where our world is heading without Christ. You know, and what we find, you guys, in looking at this, and that's interesting to me how she would, you know, share that song and how it became so popular even now, is uh, we see that in the world. We see the world is saying, hey, no possessions, no countries, one world government, no God, no religion. That's where they want to go. And I think we're seeing the signs of the times, right? And so to me, I thought, well, okay, that's the world. We're going to get raptured out of here as a church. That's the world. But what we see in Corinth is that was what was going on in the church. They were actually teaching that there in the church. Now, there may have been some influence from the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees were a powerful religious group who denied the resurrection. And so we read about them in uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four and in Acts 23 in verse 8. It says, for Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel or spirit. And so Jesus warned about these guys. He said, watch out for their leaven, watch out for their lies. The doctrine there is wrong. The, the Corinthians perhaps were somehow influenced by them. But more than likely, it was just them going back to their old ways. The, the philosophers of the day, now remember, philosophy is big in Corinth. The philosophers of the day largely denied the resurrection of the dead. As a matter of fact, you might remember when Paul the Apostle preached on Mars Hill in Acts 17, verse 32, it says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, even as we see today, how professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, imagine there's no heaven. I mean, I tell you what, it takes a great imagination to believe that everything is here by random chance, that there's no creator God. There is a heaven, and we're going to see there is a hell, and there, there is life after death. And so today in our study, we're going to see, uh, kind of broken up into three sections. In verses 12 through 19, we're going to see the results of denying the resurrection. And then in verses 20 through 28, the results of the reality of the resurrection. And then in verses 29 through 34, the results of applying the resurrection. And it's kind of cool how Paul ends the chapter with that application, and, but then he touches on it along the way. And so the results of denying the resurrection. Again, look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. We see the same thing in verse 16. Look at verse 16. It says, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And, and yet, really, when you take this chapter in context, Paul had just listed the hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus alive. And so to him, it made absolutely no sense that one, that one fact destroys their doctrine, their denial of the resurrection. And so the results of denying the resurrection, denying life after death, number one, Christ is not risen. Number two, our preaching is empty or our preaching is in vain. We see that there in verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is, is empty. Now this is interesting because uh, the word vain is founded repeatedly in this chapter. We see it again in verse 58 that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
And what he's saying throughout the whole chapter is there is life after death. And Christ is risen and therefore we preach the gospel. We preach his death, burial, and resurrection because there is life after death. If you're out there and you don't know Jesus today, maybe you're hurting, maybe you're broken, maybe you're struggling, maybe you're addicted, maybe your marriage is falling apart. There's a, there's a, there's a, you, maybe you have everything the world has to offer, but you still have no peace, you have no happiness. The, the truth, the good news is that God loves you. He made you. He died for you. And if you would ask Christ into your heart today, believing in Him, then you will live not only now, but forever. Like we were singing in the song, he'll break the chains, he'll bless your life. I know that because that's exactly what happened when Jesus Christ came into my life. He set me free. He filled my heart with joy. It doesn't mean that there won't be trials, but he gave me purpose. He lifted me up out of the pit and he put me on the rock. And so, you know, what Paul is saying here is, listen, you guys who deny life after death and you think you can still be Christians? No, it's all about life after death. Life here is a vapor. Then there's eternity and it'll never end. You know, if there is no resurrection, number one, Christ is not risen. Number two, our preaching is in vain. And then number three, your, your faith is in vain your faith is empty look again if you would there at verse 14 and if christ is not risen then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty we see the same thing in verse 17 and if christ is not risen your faith is futile you are still in your sins you know they were thinking that somehow some way you can still be a christian you know you're forgiven you know you're a child of god but there is no life after death. And what Paul is saying is absolutely not. If Christ is not risen, if, if there is no resurrection, then your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile. You're still guilty of all your sins. But of course we know that as Christians, we're not guilty. All our sins are washed away. We are forgiven. We are free. You know, the results of denying the resurrection, number five, is all those who have died before us have perished. Look at verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You know, all those who have passed away, they've been abolished, destroyed, annihilated. They cease to exist if there is no life after death, if there is no resurrection. You know, I was thinking even today on Mother's Day how difficult it can be for some who, who, who mom has gone on to be with the Lord and, and she's no longer here. You know, not just this last year, but many uh, years going back, just thinking of all the funerals I've done for moms. And this thinking even today, Jason Tallow and his family, there are others that came to my mind how this last year their mom passed away. And some of you guys out there, your mom passed away. And if there is no life after death, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus has not risen, then we'll never see them again. Then they, they cease to exist. And there's something inside of us that says there's no way that can be true. Because in Ecclesiastes 3, in verse 11, it says, God has put eternity in our hearts. We know there's life after death. Paul here, trying to share with them the reality of this, he says, man, if there is no resurrection, if there, Christ is not risen, then all those who have passed away before us in Christ, they're gone. 
And, and then the last thing he says in verse 18 and 19, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You know, I mean, if there is no life after death, um, then as Christians, we're to be pitied. That's what Paul says here. Why would we be the most pitiable, the, the most miserable? Because we as Christians live uh, for the next world primarily. Now, don't get me wrong. When we live for heaven, as like C.S. Lewis said, when we aim for heaven, we get earth thrown in. You know, when you are, are ready to die then you're really ready to live. When you know there's heaven and that's your destination, that's your motivation, then I believe it brings fullness of life here on earth. But at the same time, much of what we're doing has to do with the kingdom to come. You know, we're laying up treasures in heaven. We're making sacrifices on earth because we know that there's life after death. And so that's what Paul is saying right here then you as Christians because later on he's going to say well if there is no life after death and eat and drink and be merry because then you die no a lot of what we do has to do with the things that are eternal you know Lenski put it this way he said if this is all we are people who have cherished an illusion until the hour of our death then we are of all men most pitiable. This, of course, implies that all who are without faith and hope in Christ, all non-Christians are certainly also pitiable. They live and die without God and hope in this world. But it is still more pitiful because it is far more tragic to have a great hope in the heart throughout life, to shape the whole life according to that hope, to crucify the flesh, to war against temptation, to bear the cross, to suffer reproach and many other ills for the sake of this hope, and then in the end have that hope to turn out to be an iridescent bubble, only a dream. And so one thing's for sure. You can't say, well, I'm a Christian, you know, and do the Christian thing and not believe in life after death. You know, there we see that we're trying to do that in Corinth. And Paul says, no, the results of denying the resurrection, they're horrible. But then he moves on. He doesn't spend a lot of time there uh, because in all reality, it's so foolish to think of. He goes on in verses 20 through 28 and he talks about the results of the reality of the resurrection. And look what he says in verse 20. He says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Here we see Paul says in verse 20 that Christ is risen, and he writes that Christ has therefore become the first fruits of those who have died. In other words, he's the first to rise from the dead in the new covenant in which he paved the way for all those who will never die again. When you think of the first fruits, think of it this way, that they had the harvest, they had all the fruit, and the first uh, fruits is representative of this great harvest to follow. And that's who Jesus is, as he's the first one, the first fruits in that sense, to rise from the dead. Now, there were others in the Bible that did uh, rise from the dead. 
for example, we read in 1 Kings chapter 17, the widow's son at Zarephath, and then, of course, the Shunammite son in 2 Kings chapter 4. One was raised by Elijah, the other by Elisha. There was an Israeli man who actually rose from the dead just because uh, when they buried him, he touched the bones of Elisha. And so there were other people that rose from the dead. Uh, Jairus' daughter, the widow of uh, Nain's uh, son, Lazarus, they all rose from the dead. So it wasn't necessarily a chronological thing. Christ wasn't the first one to rise chronologically, but he was the first one to, to rise in the Christian covenant. And in that sense, he's the first fruits that would usher in this wonderful, wonderful harvest. You know, I don't know how you guys feel. I mean, to be honest, I, I don't, I'm, to me, it's kind of bizarre that, that a Christian would be afraid to die. Um, there are some people out there, though, huh? I wonder if there are any out there. You're, you're afraid to die, uh, and you're a Christian. And to me, it's almost like an, an oxymoron, you know? I mean, I don't know. I guess we all have different uh, phobias. Uh, my uh, kids, no, I shouldn't say this. I know some people who are afraid of spiders, um, others who are afraid of flying. And uh, you wonder, why are they afraid of flying? And so I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's not just because they're afraid to die. Uh, they're just afraid of flying. Okay, we'll just say it that way. I don't know. You know, but, but to me, uh, for a Christian to, to be afraid to die, it, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, Christ has risen. He's conquered the coffin, defeated death, gutted the grave. For us, we don't have to be afraid of that. This virus that we're talking about, the coronavirus, you know, I mean, again, not to be foolish, and again, we don't want to get others sick, but at the end of the day, we have to live life. We have to gather together. God created us in his image, and part of being in his, Im in his, in his image means that we are social creatures. We are social beings. We are created to embrace. We are created to be closer than six feet apart. We were created to do that. And at the end of the day, we can do this for a certain amount of season, but eventually you have to come back together, even if it means that I, maybe there's a certain small fraction of a percentage, it means that I might, you know, get sick or whatever. I might even die. I'd rather live close to my friends and face that. And then, who knows, maybe one day, yeah, I'll, I'll die, than, than live my whole life apart from people. And all that, why? Because of the fact that I'm not afraid to die. We have an appointment with death. The Bible says that. Now, we're not going to be foolish, but the Lord knows the motivation of our heart. We love people. We love people. And that's why we want to gather together again. And if God calls me home, praise God, I'll be in a place where pizza is good for me. I'm telling you what, that's one of the greatest things I'm looking forward to in heaven of course, uh, seeing God, uh, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and the wounds in his hands and seeing the lamb that was slain and seeing the colors and hearing the sounds and being there in glory, to me, that's all this awesome things, man. And so for us, Paul said, to depart is better. We're not afraid to die. What we find is that Christ is risen and he's the first fruits of this great harvest and we have nothing to be afraid of. You know, what we find, look at verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, 
and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Now, when, when he's talking about there, at his coming, he's talking about the rapture of the church. Because uh, 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 17, it says that Christ will descend, and then there'll be the shout, the, then there'll be a voice of an archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise. And so what that means is that if someone dies today, they're in glory, they're there, but they don't have their glorified body yet, the permanent body that they'll possess forever. But when the rapture of the church happens, and that can be any moment now, at any moment, then the dead in Christ will rise. It's then that we will receive our glorified bodies. And that's what he's talking about there in verse 23. You see, the reality of the resurrection, what we're seeing here leads Paul to teach not only about where it leads to, we're going to see how it all you know, leads to the end, but even how it all went down. The reality of the resurrection here, Paul says, this is how it all started and this is kind of the makeup of it. Look again at verse 21. For since by man came death, by man, that's a capital M, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And this is how it all works. You know, there are two families. And so the first point here in the results of the reality of the resurrection is the first fruits. And the second is the two families. First you have the Adam's family. Here Paul teaches us that it was through Adam that death entered the world and therefore in Adam all died. And so, all of us are descendants of Adam and Eve. And just in case you're uh, wondering, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. Adam's the one that sinned. I didn't sin. If you were there, you would have done the same thing. As a matter of fact, you probably would have done it sooner, right? And so, what he's saying here is that's how it all started. God, remember in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, he made everything. He told Adam, everything's yours. You can eat of the fruit of the gardens. There's only one tree I don't want you to eat from. And what did Adam do? He went and he ate from that one tree. We would have done the same thing. And so that's how sin entered the world. That's how death entered the world through Adam as our representative. And so we're all naturally part of the Adam's family. But then there's secondly, God's family. Paul also teaches us that our first representative brought death, but the second representative brought life into the world by the resurrection. That through this man, referring to Christ, came the righteous resurrection. And, and he shares that here. He also shares, if you get a chance, I encourage you to read Romans chapter 5, um, but there's a couple of verses. In verse 18, he says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification in life. And so in Romans 5:19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And so Paul, talking about the resurrection, 
he starts uh, kind of breaking it down. He's going in a certain direction. He wants us to understand how Christ is the first fruits of this great harvest. And he wants us to understand the two families and kind of how it all started and how it all it continues and what Adam did and what the second Adam has done. But then he kind of goes on, look at to the very end. In verse 24, he said, And then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he, speaking of Jesus, must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who has put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so the, the results of the resurrection, three things Paul talks about, the first fruits, the families, and then the Father here. And what we find is that Paul does much more than just state the fact of Christ's resurrection he, he states our future resurrection and he takes it all the way to the end and introduces that truth that comes from the Father. That there has to be a connection between the resurrection and the final consummation. Because there are people there saying, there's no life after death. And what Paul is saying, oh yeah, there's life, there's an abundance of life and you watch what's going to happen there is life after death a lot of life after death we should know it biblically and we should know it uh, i think inherently there's what's called special revelation which is the bible and jesus but there's also what's called general revelation which is creation and conscience and in our conscience if you look in like i shared earlier ecclesiastes 311 it says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Now, I remember one time I was working with, with a guy at Vaughn's uh, back in the day, and he told me, yeah, I just believe that when you die, you stay six feet under. And I told him, I said, you don't have any evidence for that. You don't. You know, they don't. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you, you can't prove that if one ceases to exist. But you can have evidence for one coming back from the life. You can have evidence for this God that comes into one's life and he changes everything. You look at everything. Who made all this? What do you make it for? Nothing? No, it's forever. It's in us. We know it. When someone dies and we're there at the at their funeral, we just know, man, Lord, of all things, of all things, I want to see them again. I want to be with them again because it's inside of us. Right? And what we find right here is one day we will be there. There's something inside of us that tells us about life after death that when we die, we don't cease to exist. When our loved ones pass away, we're going to see them again. It's just goodbye for now. And we're going to see God one day. There's something about that that makes sense. Think about it. This one who invented love, who invented personal relationships. Doesn't it make sense that we can have a relationship with him? You know, that's what Job said. And it's interesting to me how Job wrote this because the book of Job is the first book, we believe is the first book that was ever written. And so he didn't have a Bible, 
But he knew it in his heart, right? It was there, Ecclesiastes 3.11. He knew it. It was in his conscience. He knew it. God had shown to him. In Job chapter 19, verse 25, it says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. It's kind of like what we're saying right here. I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh, there it is, that's our resurrection. In our flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my, t- my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me to see God. That's what Paul is saying here. Job knew it. He didn't even have a Bible. We know it. We have a Bible. We have the whole Bible. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the new covenant. You know, Paul here, he writes how it's all going to go down. And in verse 24, he says, and then comes the end. And of course, the end speaks of the end of this world, the end of time, and the beginning of eternity. That's what he's talking about, right? Verse 23 speaks of Jesus coming. And as we study the order of events, we know that first there is the rapture of the church. And so uh, that's the next event, I believe, on the, on the calendar uh, of uh, prophecy. It's going to happen any moment. We're going to see it later in 1 Corinthians 15. As a matter of fact, since we're here, we might as well turn to it. Look what it says in verse 51, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That's a parallel passage to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. And when he says we're, we're, we won't all sleep, no, listen, we all sleep physically. What he's saying is that we're not all going to die. That there will be a time, one eleventh of a second, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be raptured out of here. That's what he's saying. And so we need to be ready for that. That can happen at any moment. But then after the rapture of the church, you read Daniel nine twenty four through 27, and you read about the seven-year covenant, you read about the seven-year tribulation period described in Revelation, and then what you find is after the seven-year tribulation period, Christ comes, and he's going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years. It'll be the millennial kingdom. And after the thousand years is over, during that time, Satan is bound in the abuso, the bottomless pit, but he's released one more time. And he musters up a rebellion against the Lord. And then that's the last battle of all where the Father devours them with fire. And then you go into the Revelation chapter 20. You have the great white throne judgment. And then what's that's done is interesting because the Bible says that death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. And then there is the new kingdom. Then there is heaven. That's what he's talking about right here. Now, it's interesting, when you look at this whole thing, we find is that, you know, death is destroyed, that death is cast into uh, the lake of fire. You know, we read that here, look at verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, verse 25 talks about all the enemies being put under his feet, and of course, you know, we're thinking about demons, we're, we're thinking about, you know, principalities and powers, but then he mentions death. And, and so I'm going to get a little weird on you guys. Um, 
death being thrown into the lake of fire. You know, in like Greek mythology, they have Hades, or some people have the concept of a grim reaper. I wonder about that sometimes, you know, how death is thrown into the lake of fire. What if there is like an angel of death? What if there is uh, some type of demonic figure that is representative of that? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this, that at least a personification of death is thrown in. And so things to think about, all I know is that every enemy, all authority, all rule will be gone. And then it says right here that the Father himself will rule. Now, of course, what he's talking about right here is that, you know, up to that point, there's been a delegated authority the Father has given to the Son. But then when we're in heaven, what we find is that the Son himself is subject to the Father, something he's always been. But I think the reason that Paul says this is is he's saying this, I want you to know that this is truth from the top. Because the Father, God the Father, is highest in function and office. And just in case there's someone out there who's thinking, well, you know, Jesus is second or whatever, the Holy Spirit is third, even though the mystery of the Trinity is something beyond us, what Paul is saying here is no, absolutely not. Almighty God the Father will rule, and he's all part of this whole thing. And you guys need to know that this is truth from the top. And there's something about when Jesus talks over and over again in the Gospel of John about how his doctrine was not his, how it was given to him from the Father. And so the results of denying the resurrection in verses 12 through 19, the results of the reality of the resurrection in verses 20 through 28, and then the results of applying it, the, the applying the resurrection In verse 29 through 34. Look what he says. In verse 29. Otherwise what will they do who are baptized for the dead. If the dead do not rise at all. Why then are they baptized for the dead. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour. I affirm by the boasting in you. Which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And so now in this new paragraph, it's interesting, Paul He kind of presents to us uh, the resurrection, the importance and the impact it makes on our Christian life. And he starts in the beginning, in the very beginning when we're baptized. Now, verse 29, some people have kind of taken it wrong. And there's different views out there. Some say that this is literally people baptizing their uh, other family members who died before them. And they they say it was a pagan practice and it was something that was kind of crept into Corinth. We don't really know much about it. But I I think that it's different. I, I like what Lenski said. And this is the way he translated the verse. He said, else what shall they do who are baptized with a view to the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Lenski was a Greek scholar and I really admire his commentary on this. 
What he's basically saying there in verse 29 is that what does baptism symbolize? Baptism symbolizes death and resurrection. And so remember when you got baptized, and if you haven't gotten baptized, hopefully we can do that you know, for you, with you. You know, they put you under the water, right? It's symbolic of dying, but we don't keep you there. We bring you up from the water. And so what Lenski is saying is that that doesn't make any sense. If you don't rise from the dead, um, then why do we have that symbol of baptism? And he's talking now about the Christian life and how it all started. It started there when you, you know, the first thing you did after you got saved, so to speak, is you went. And there's a symbol of baptism. And then after the symbol, in verse 30, is the service. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? You know, as Paul the Apostle there in that, that day, is probably a lot more dangerous to be a Christian, going against the, the rule of, of Rome in one sense, the religion of Rome, the emperor of Rome. You know, and so... Um, if you're, there's no life after death, and what's this whole thing about baptism? And what's this whole thing about sacrificial service that can sometimes even be dangerous? And then after the, the service, what about self? In verse 30, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. If there's no resurrection, then why do we take up our cross? Why do we deny ourselves? Why don't we just give ourselves everything our flesh wants? And Paul here said, because there is a resurrection. And so I have that symbol of baptism. And I serve even if it's dangerous. And I will die to myself every single day. That's what disciples of Christ do. Every single day. And this is one of my favorite verses. I remember when I first got saved as a Christian, you know, my friend gave it to me. And at first, I don't, I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't know if I like that verse. But, you know, all my life now as a Christian, I've realized that this is where it starts. And then in verse 32, after the symbol and service and self, there's Satan in verse 32. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, I, I, I don't know. The other day my wife and I were, were walking and we saw a coyote and we got a little scared. No, I'm just joking. We didn't get really scared. She got scared anyways. You know, she started praying the coyote out because it's kind of like right there in the middle of the street. And so, you know, imagine fighting a beast. Imagine fighting a lion. Think, think about it, man, this roaring, crazy lion. Well, we don't do that physically per se, but we do that spiritually. We are fighting the devil. We are fighting demons. You know, they're telling us to eat. They're telling us to drink. They're telling us to party. He is wooing us. And, and, and so Paul is saying, man, if there's no resurrection, why are we fighting this battle? You know, he's, he's just telling us there is a resurrection. And so you're baptized. There is a resurrection. And so you serve. There, there is a resurrection. And so you die to self. There is a resurrection. And so you fight the devil. You know, there, there is a resurrection. And so you're sanctified from sinners. Again, there in verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. He says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame.
Now, in, in the context here, he's talking about false teachers. But, but of course, we know that it's applicable that who, you tell me who you hang out with, and I'll tell you who you are. And that sounds better in Spanish. Um, but, um, you know, you have to be careful. Who are your, 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 your best friends? Are they Christians who will give you godly counsel? Who are you surrounding with? Who are you hanging out with? Don't be deceived. Don't think that you're the exception to the rule, that you can date a non-believer. Don't think that you can be unequally yoked because you've waited for such a long time and you're a solid Christian. No. He says, don't be deceived by that concept. Evil company corrupts good habits. And he goes on to explain that to them, that we have to awake and we have to avoid those sinners, that sin. And I would even tell you this, because the context here is speaking of false teachers. Don't think you could just listen to anyone on the internet. Oh, and just, you're getting it from us a smorgasbord nowadays, and you're going to be okay. No, are they teaching you the Bible? Are they opening up the Bible and teaching you the Bible? Because if not, what Paul is saying here is you might fall prey to false doctrine. And so, you know, beware, Corinthians, of the culture. Beware of the seduction of the Sadducees. You know, for us, and I think we kind of go back to it, huh? He talked about abiding there. Man, keep believing the gospel until the day you die. And so, imagine. Imagine if we're there one day in heaven, I don't know, you guys are going to think I'm weird, but it's probably too late for that, and John Lennon is there. Imagine, you know, if at his dying moment after he was shot, because C.S. Lewis said there's no atheists in the foxholes. Imagine if at the last moment he called on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know some of you out there are thinking, no, I don't really like that song, and I don't think he should be in heaven, you know, and things like that. And all I'm saying is that it, wouldn't that be crazy? Because at the end of the day, God is willing to forgive any sin and any sinner. Jesus put it this way in John 14. He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's God's heart. Where he is, that we would be with him. He's preparing a place for them. Now, the guys were wondering, Lord, what are you talking about? We, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. Can you kind of elaborate on that? And then in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said it, he made it very simple. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. And so if you're here, and you're watching, and you're listening, and you're wondering, how can I be saved? Today I pray with all my heart that you would know there is a place in heaven, there is a home that God has prepared for you, and if you would like to be there and find life not only then, but even now, at this moment, then all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for you, all your sins, they put him in a grave, he rose again three days later. And if today you would believe in Jesus, not just in your head, but in your heart, you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
sin. And this is a message we preach, Christians. I pray that we would not commit the sin of silence, but that we would share this with the world.